Well, it was a great weekend, long weekend. Kathy and I went to Kathy's sister's in East Texas, and our daughters were there. And uh, there was no green bean casserole there. <laughs> it was a great, great time. And there was pecan pie, which was fantastic. I, I got a piece of pie and uh, enjoyed every bite. So I hope that your Thanksgiving was uh, good beyond food, but also was good with uh, people and family. And uh, just a moment to ponder the great, great grace of Christ and the real reason that we have uh, to be thankful for anything is because of all that he's done for us. When I got certified as a scuba diver, this was years ago, they give uh, lifetime certifications for scuba divers, kind of like they do with uh, driver's licenses. Um, I guess it's okay to have a sidebar here for a second, even though we just got started. But don't you wish that they'd make us take driver's tests like every five years? I mean, other people. I mean, I don't, we don't need them. But other people, it would be great if we had to re-up on some of the driver's things because evidently people have forgotten some of the rules about driving. But anyway, scuba diving is the same way, which sort of seems as dangerous as uh, driving without getting certified every five years. But once you're certified as a scuba diver, you're good to go for life. You can dive. And I remember when I got certified, I took the class with, three, uh, with two other buddies. There were three of us that uh, took the class. And to celebrate our graduating you know, scuba class, we decided to take a <laughs> trip to Cozumel, Mexico, and to scuba dive down there. So we had all the plans set. You know, one, one of us was taking care of uh, the travel, one of us was taking care of the hotel, and just different, different people were taking care of different things. And my friend named Brad uh, didn't pass the course, and he was taking care of the hotel. So I went over to my instructor and I said, look, so let Brad retake this test. It was the certification test where they actually you actually go down under the water and perform tasks, and the guy watches you, you know, while you perform your task, or in Brad's case, while he didn't. And I said, please let him retake it. And the instructor says, okay, but you're coming down with us. And I said, all right. So we go down, and the part of the course that Brad needed to get certified on is the one part left, and that was what's called buddy breathing. Buddy breathing. Buddy breathing is where you, uh, you basically plan for the contingency in case one of your tanks doesn't work and you're down there and you can't breathe, but you're always supposed to have a dive buddy with you. You never dive alone. You always have somebody with you so that if one tank goes out, you can share the regulator on your way back up to the surface. So buddy breathing. It's a great idea. Well, we get down there, and the, the guy gives us the signal, okay, go ahead and start your buddy breathing. So I take my regulator out, and Brad takes several long, deep, cool, refreshing breaths of oxygen. And I'm waiting and waiting and waiting while he's taking these <laughs> deep...
And I'm there, you know, with bubbles, <laughs> trying to look cool because the, the instructor is sitting right there, you know, watching to make sure that this is all going to go well because Brad's paying for the hotel, remember. So I've got to make this guy look good. And he finally, after one long breath, takes the regulator out and hands it to me. And I grab it and, like, almost inhale it uh, and finally get my breaths. And so, what do you know, Brad passed. And so we were able to go on our trip. And I remember about halfway through Brad's 18 breaths before he gave me one... I thought, exactly how long does Brad think I can hold my breath? Because it was, oh, I'm, I'm obviously exaggerating, but I mean, it was probably a good 30 or 40 seconds of him breathing and of me waiting. The, um, you know what SCUBA stands for? It's actually an abbreviation or an, or an acronym, you might say. It's Self-Contained Underwater Breathing Apparatus. That's what SCUBA stands for. I think Jacques Cousteau invented it, which is pretty amazing. It's only been in the last hundred years or so that we've been able to breathe underwater and see all the beautiful things that the Lord has there. But uh, emphasize that uh, the, B, the B is for breathing. And to be able to breathe underwater is an amazing thing. But if you don't have the scuba tank, you aren't breathing underwater. And Brad uh, finally gave me the, uh, uh, finally Buddy breathed with me, and it worked out just fine. But I remember this event, obviously, because in those moments where my brain was being deprived of oxygen, it was being, the memory was seared. I can still picture Brad, and I can still picture the instructor. The instructor was there, and Brad was right there. I could still picture it very clearly in my mind. And I thought, been, I've thought back to that many times, not just in the, in the funny event that Brad took a long time, but also I thought, you know, this is what the spiritual life often feels like. It's like we're buddy breathing with God. And he's got the tank. And he loves to take long breaths while we are there waiting we are dying in need of air. And God has all we need if he'll just hand it to us. And like Brad, he, he takes his time sometimes, doesn't he? And we can be struggling. And we can ask the same question exactly, how long does God think I can hold my breath? You know, it's no surprise when people ignore God. We see that all the time. What sort of surprises us is when we get the impression that God is ignoring people. Especially His people. Or let's get real specifically, us. When God ignores us. When we read the Bible, God isn't some far-off deity he is very active. In fact, the very first verse of the Bible is a God of action. God created. He, he took the initiative, and he has been taking the initiative since day one, literally since day one. He is the God of action. He creates. He blesses. He judges. He brings about great, uh, great life-changing events. He sent Jesus Christ. There's miracles. There's healings. There's resurrection. 
There's the great book of Acts where, I mean, the Holy Spirit is active in the church and the message goes throughout, you know, the whole known world at that time. God is a God of action. So why is he stepping on our air hose? Why does he seem so uninvolved in our world and, more specifically, in our world? In our lives. Well, let's look together at the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk. There's only really one way to pronounce that. I guess you could try it a couple of different ways. Habakkuk. Uh, some have, have said Habakkuk as another one. But the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk was a prophet. And you remember that Habakkuk was a prophet before the exile. If you look at the whole big picture of uh, Old Testament history, you have the entrance into the land. You know, you've got the promise to Abraham, the promise that there's going to be his descendants in the land. The whole exodus occurs, and they actually enter the land under Joshua, conquer the land, live there with the, the times of the kings, and then the divided kingdom. And then God says, if you don't repent, I'm going to take you out of the land that I put you in. And there were a number of prophets before the exile. Sometimes they're called pre-exilic for that reason that said, if you don't you know, repent and begin living according to the law, then God says, I'm going to take you out of the land. Habakkuk was one of those prophets. But his message has an interesting twist. And as we'll see, there was a preacher one time that said, asked his congregation, he said, what can you tell me? You always got to be careful when you actually ask the congregation to respond. What can you tell me about the prophet Habakkuk. One guy in the back raised his hand and said, He is dead. <laughs> you know, it's obviously true, but his words live on. In spite of the fact that Habakkuk is dead, we often think about the Bible that way. When the God of action is a God of inaction, and a God who we wish would be more involved is not as involved. It's almost like the Bible is dead. But Habakkuk is a wonderful hidden treasure. It's hidden because it's in this section of the Minor Prophets that's often buried in the sense that we don't hardly ever look at them. But it's a treasure because it is so relevant. We're going to see truth from this book that is applicable to where we are today. Whatever struggle you brought in to, the, to our time together with, with you, uh, Habakkuk addresses that struggle, and we're going to talk, talk about that. Look at chapter 1, verse 1, and let's meet Habakkuk and his problem. Habakkuk 1, verse 1. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw, How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you, Violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored, and justice is never upheld. 
For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. God bless America. We could, much like Habakkuk, we could today read these first four four verses. In the land in which we live, it is a land that is surrounded by wickedness in spite of its godly beginnings, or or I should say in spite of its Judeo-Christian beginnings. We live in a land that is beginning to do a 180 on its commitment to its origins, or at least its origins. And this was true of Habakkuk's time, and it's often, it is also true of ours. We are living in a nation like Habakkuk said of Judah at that time, just before the exile, just before God takes them out of the land because of their sin. Habakkuk says of Judah what we could say of our country. There is violence, there is iniquity, there is wickedness, there is destruction, there is strife, there is contention, there is justice that is perverted. God sees the evil, Habakkuk says, but God does nothing. Apparently, God is doing nothing. And this is what Habakkuk is saying. Lord, you see it. You make me see it, and you do nothing. And you see it, and you do nothing. Judah is is a sinful nation. It has become a sinful nation. Why don't you do something about it? Habakkuk had a problem with God standing on the air hose. Or said another way, Habakkuk had a problem with God's inactivity. God wasn't doing anything. And hence the question, how long will you ignore my prayer? How long will you make me look at evil and just sit there? Now, We won't say it out loud because we're not supposed to, but Habakkuk is reading our mail, or he's reading our emails, or he's reading our thoughts. That is, we've got the same kind of questions a lot of times as well. God, I feel like you aren't answering my prayers. I feel like you see the evil that I'm dealing with in my life, and you're not helping me. Like you see the problems, but you're standing on the air hose, and I really, really need some air. How long do you think I can hold my breath? Maybe you are praying or wanting something that is right. We're not talking about selfish desires here. We're talking about right desires, like the salvation of a family member or someone that uh, is a Christian who needs to repent and come back into the fold. Or perhaps a nation that has begun wandering from its Judeo-Christian beginnings. These are things that we pray for that are right, that we know that are the will of God, because we read it in His Word that it's His will. And yet God does nothing. We're praying for God to do His will, and yet He doesn't. And so Habakkuk lists here the first of two problems that he has with God, and they're the two problems that we have with God, among many others. And the first is God's inactivity, that Habakkuk had a problem with the fact that God was doing nothing. Habakkuk said, why, how long will you, uh, will I cry and you will not answer? Well, look at what God actually answers now in verse 5. Look at God's reply 
to Habakkuk's concern. Verse 5, the Lord says, Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days you would not believe even if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. And then he goes on to describe these Chaldeans. The Chaldeans are the Babylonians. You might even have that in your translation if you have a different translation, the Babylonians. Uh, Remember that Abraham was from Ur of the Chaldees. It's the area of Babylon down, probably the area just north of the Persian Gulf in ancient Babylon or modern Iraq. And these uh, Chaldeans were much like the Assyrians we saw in the time of Jonah and Nahum, these Babylonians came after the fact, and they were terrible. You can imagine. Babylonians were a horrible nation. And God says, look, I am going to take care of the problem of Judah. I'm going to bring in the Chaldeans, and the Chaldeans are going to spank my people. And they're going to take them out of the land. They're going to exile them all the way to Babylon. To Habakkuk's question, why do you do nothing, God's answer was, I am doing something. But honestly, Habakkuk, you wouldn't believe it even if you were told. And the commands here are very striking. In fact, look at the progression there in verse 5. The commands are look, observe, be astonished, wonder. Look at the progression there. First you're just looking, then you're really looking, and then it goes from astonishment to wonder. It goes from observation to astonishment, to wonder, to looking at something that you can't wrap your mind around. I just returned from Turkey last month and uh, had the privilege of seeing many of the places of the book of Acts, particularly the first missionary journey. And one of the places that I went was what the book of Acts calls Pisidian Antioch. Pisidian Antioch. And at Pisidian Antioch, there are a bunch of ruins, but there's also a church built over an ancient synagogue. And the synagogue was probably the synagogue from Acts chapter 13, where the Apostle Paul and Barnabas uh, went to Pisidian Antioch on their first missionary journey, and Paul preached there. It's his first recorded sermon in, in all his missionary journeys. It's the longest which Luke basically is sort of identifying. This is sort of an example of how Paul would preach in synagogues. You remember he would always go to synagogues first, and then once the Jews said, we don't want anything to do with it, then he'd go and he'd talk to the Gentiles in the city. Well, in Pisidian Antioch, he quotes Habakkuk. In fact, he quotes Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5, what we just read. You might have a cross-reference there in verse 5 to Acts 13, verse 41. And we won't turn there, but basically Paul quotes here, and he's talking to Jews, and he says, uh, you'll want to repent, otherwise what the the prophet prophesied is going to happen to you. And he quotes here from Habakkuk 1.5, the context of which is basically, look, if you don't repent, a foreign nation is going to come in and discipline the Jews. And Paul is saying that's exactly what's going to happen to the Jews of Pisidian Antioch if you don't trust in Christ. So Habakkuk's principle is one that goes beyond simply 
Habakkuk's time. It's one that Paul applied in his time, and it's one that we can apply in ours as well. That God's sovereign hand working in the world comes about in a way that is beyond our comprehension, but its goal is to motivate repentance. When God works in the world in such a way that we can't understand it, his goal is to motivate repentance whenever there is a someone goes askew from the law of God. Habakkuk asked God why he was doing nothing, and God says he is doing something. He's raising up the Chaldeans. And we won't read verses 7 through 11, but God describes these people, and it isn't a pretty picture. He says they are ruthless, they are violent, they are godless. And now, as you can imagine, Habakkuk has a second problem with God. Look at verse 12 and verse 13. Habakkuk asks the Lord, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you, you cannot look on wickedness with favor. So pause there for a second. So basically what Habakkuk is saying is, oh good, you are doing something about our wicked nation. You're bringing these people in and you're going to judge this wicked nation with a nation more wicked than us. Let's keep going in verse 13. He asks, why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? So now Habakkuk has a second problem with God. The cure, Habakkuk says, is worse than the disease. You are bringing in a godless people who are more godless than us to take care of us? Shouldn't it be the other way around? Shouldn't we, you know, a sort of godless people, go and take care or judge the people who are really godless? Why have you flipped it? Why are you bringing in a horrible nation to take care of a nation that's more righteous than they are. So the second problem Habakkuk has is the fact that um, God is doing something. Remember, his first problem is, God, why aren't you doing anything? And now Habakkuk's problem is, well, I am doing something, but you don't like what I'm doing. So either way, we're not happy. <laughs> first of all, we're frustrated that God isn't involved in our lives and then secondly, when he gets involved in a way that we can discern, we don't like what he's doing. So either way, Habakkuk wasn't happy. God told Habakkuk, I love this, in verse 5, he said, look, if I answered your question, you wouldn't believe it. Habakkuk says, sure I would. And so God says, all right, here's what I'm doing. Habakkuk says, I don't believe it. <laughs> How many of you would believe if God told you 25 years ago that you would be where you are today, and not just where you are today, but how you got here. If God were to say, look, here's exactly what's going to happen. Here's the hard things that you're going to have to go through. And here are the specifics of the pain that I'm going to allow in your life to get you where you are today. How many of us would say, Lord, where do I sign? I'm absolutely on board with that. None of us would. None of us would. So in God's grace, he keeps us in the dark. In his grace, in a sense, he, he stands on the air hose and doesn't let us breathe in those moments when we're underwater, not because he's cruel, but because he's gracious. 
because he knows that if he were to if he were to uh, open up the truth of what's coming like he did with Habakkuk it would cause us like in verse 5 to observe to to uh, be astonished and to wonder we couldn't wrap our minds around how a good god is going to allow evil in our lives that aren't really that evil and yet this is how god operates we ask god help me be strong in my Christian life. So God brings us through a trial, and we say, God, what are you doing? He says, I'm helping you to be strong in your Christian life. This is exactly what you prayed. But we don't like how he brings it about. Habakkuk's struggle with God is our struggle with God. God, why aren't you doing anything? Struggle number one. God, why are you doing it this way? Struggle number two. I want you to act. But I didn't want you to act like that. I'm convinced that God keeping us in the dark is because of his grace. And his ways are so far above our ways. Remember Isaiah's great chapter 55 that talks about as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways higher than our ways. His mind is higher than our mind. Habakkuk asks, he says, Lord, Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? And he ends his question in chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1 really ends Habakkuk's uh, response. It's sort of deceiving that that it begins a brand new chapter. It really could end chapter 1, where he ends by saying, chapter 2, verse 1, I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. You see, Habakkuk understood that he is talking to a sovereign God, and he says, Lord, I don't get it. First of all, I didn't get it that, that you aren't doing anything. Second, I don't get it that I don't like what you're doing. And I know that my criticism of you isn't right. So I'm just here waiting for you to go ahead and reprove me, teach me, help me to understand because I'm not getting it. And this is a great posture to have. God wants us to be honest with him. He wants us to say, Lord, I don't like it. But he also wants us to say, Lord, here I I stand. Reprove me. Improve me. Correct, rebuke, train me in righteousness, that I may be fully equipped for every good work. The word of God's purpose is to open our eyes and to peel away our own preferences and to say, Lord, uh, help me be, help me see bigger than my own little universe. Help me have a trust in a God who is sovereign over all things and not just over my things. Habakkuk says, God, you are doing something after all. Fantastic, but I don't like it. So help me, rebuke me. You know, it's a wise person that takes his or her questions about God's work in our lives to God. I love that John the Baptist did this. Remember when he was struggling? He was imprisoned at Machairus just before uh, Herod Antipas took his head off after his stepdaughter danced, and you remember that whole story. But just before that, uh, John the Baptist sent word to Christ, 
and said, are you the, are you the expected one or should we expect someone else? Because the, what we expected is the kingdom. And I'm sitting in prison. This is not what we expected. And Jesus sends back to John, points John to the Bible, and says, remember the scripture, John. I am doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. And remember, this life is not all of your life. There's a resurrection coming. But what I love about that is that John the Baptist went to Christ with his question. John didn't go, if we can use today's terms, to science. He didn't go to philosophy. He didn't go to the self-help section of Barnes & Noble. He went to Christ. And Christ took him right to the Word. In other words, when we have a, a question or a problem about what God is or isn't doing in our lives, like John the Baptist, like Habakkuk, we need to go to the Word of God and say, Lord, here I am. Reprove me. Teach me. Give me an insight beyond myself. And God does just this in Habakkuk's uh, life and his response. Look at verse 2. Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. God responds to Habakkuk and says, write this down for the future, that the one who reads it may run. In other words, a messenger. Write this down for the future, that the message can go abroad, that the one who reads it may run. The vision that he talks about here is what's basically described in the rest of the book, that the Chaldeans, the ones that God's going to bring in to discipline Judea, God's going to deal with the Chaldeans. Don't worry, Habakkuk, about this wicked nation. Their time is coming. Believe me, it'll come. And he says, though it tarries, wait for it. God's justice is going to come. God's going to take care of the Chaldeans. And the remainder of the book talks about that. And this satisfaction that Habakkuk is longing for as he looks around not only at his own culture, but at this godless culture that's coming in to discipline, the satisfaction God stresses through repetition there in verse 3 It tarries, wait for it, it will certainly come, it will not delay. Uh, He basically says, even though you're waiting, don't give up. And while we're waiting, we have two options. And these options are mentioned here in verse 4. Undoubtedly, the most famous verse, or or most quoted in the New Testament anyway, uh, in Habakkuk is Habakkuk 2, verse 4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. When we are struggling with Habakkuk's struggle or struggles of what God is doing or isn't doing, we've got two options, and they're both listed right here in verse 4. The first is the proud one. This is epitomized, of course, by the Chaldeans in the book, but we can also think about it in our own lives. Because, he says, um, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. The soul, the word there for soul, we typically think of soul as that immaterial part of us, our spirit. 
But the Hebrew word here for soul includes that, but it also includes all parts of us. It's our soul, it's our, uh, it's our emotions, it's our physical body. In other words, all of who he is isn't right because of his pride. And a proud person is a person that looks at the doings of God and thinks, God, God, you are not right in what you're doing. And as a result, you're out of line and I need to be in charge. This is, this is the proud person. Pride is the mindset that we're smarter than God, that God should do things our way. But this is the attitude of one whose life is not right within him. His whole life is off when that's the mindset. The other alternative, of course, is the righteous living by faith. And the entire book of Habakkuk, you could really summarize it in one single application, and that's all we're going to have this morning by way of application, unless obviously the Lord mentions a couple of other things to your heart as we work our way through the text. But here's a very specific application, and it's a bit long, but here it is. I'll, I'll mention it, I'll repeat it a couple times. When distressed by what God isn't doing or is doing, remember the righteous will live by faith. When distressed by what God isn't doing or is doing, remember the righteous will live by faith. When, like Habakkuk, we've got a problem with God's inactivity, with what he isn't doing, the righteous will live by faith. When we have a problem with what God is doing, the righteous will live by faith. We have to live by faith and not by sight. The Christian life, the life of the believer in the Old Testament, the life of the Christian in the New Testament, is a life that's lived by faith. It's not that we walk an aisle you know, as a, as a child or an, as an adult and we get baptized and now all of a sudden everything is just easy. We're just kind of coasting, waiting for the rapture. No, that's the beginning of the tough life. But the tough life is one in which we walk in tandem with a God who is stronger than us. It's what Peter says when we, um, he says to submit yourself or to put yourself under the God who is powerful, to trust in, in a God who is all-powerful. It, it is a walk of faith. If we really believe that Jesus Christ is the smartest man who ever lived, then we're going to trust him with our life, and we're going to do what he says. Remember, Jesus said, if you, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. That's tough to hear, because we don't always do that, do we? The righteous will live by faith. This is such a timeless truth that it's quoted three times in the New Testament. Paul quotes it twice, once in Romans, once in Galatians. Both of those times, the righteous will live by faith is talking about the fact that we are only justified in God's sight by faith, not by works. That's Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11. He quotes Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith to show that we can only be justified in God's sight by believing in him, by believing in what he's revealed, specifically that Jesus died and rose again for us. But Hebrews also quotes the same verse in Hebrews 10 verse 38 to show that the, that the life of a Christian is also a life that's lived by faith, that the faith that we had at the very beginning is the faith that we have all the way through our Christian life. 
It's a type of faith that begins at salvation and extends throughout eternity. So again, the principle that I mentioned, when distressed by what God isn't doing or is doing, remember, the righteous will live by faith. God's incomprehensible ways should cause us to worship, not to wander. Think about that. When we can't understand what God is doing in our lives, the world would tempt us to wander from God to to seek a different solution. The Bible urges us to worship. When we come face to face with a God who is so far beyond our understanding, we worship because He gets it. And though we don't get it, we get that He gets it. And that's enough. We can trust a God who knows all things. So, in contrast, in contrasting these two attitudes of pride and faith, God contrasts them here at the end of chapter 2. Look down at chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Again, the contrast of these two positions. Verse 19, Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake! To a mute stone, arise! And that is your teacher? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. I, uh, I heard about a Sunday school teacher who dismissed her children to go to big church. That's what you know it's usually called. Sunday school, and you've got big church from a child's perspective. You've got Sunday school, and you've got big church. Well, going to big church, and she says, Now, why is it important that we be quiet or we be silent in church? And the little girl says, because everyone is sleeping. (laughs) From the mouths of babes. Well, to be silent before God here is not because everyone is sleeping. But we're silent before God in the sense that it doesn't mean that you can't talk to God or you can't take your problems to God. That's not what that means. It's contrasting verse 19 in that, One who says to a piece of wood, notice the idolater is talking to his idol. He is talking to a piece of wood and says, awake, or to a a mute stone. A a mute stone means they can't speak. Arise. And then that amazing question, this is your teacher, you're looking at wood and stone. It is overlaid with gold and silver and there's no breath. There's no life. To look at an idol and to say, or anything in our lives that represents an idol, and to and to look to it for guidance, it is futile. But then the contrast in verse twenty. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Now we've, we're talking about the Lord God of the universe. We are silent before Him, and because we are in awe of Him. We are not telling Him to awake, to arise, like the idolater does to his idol. We don't say anything by way of command to our God. We are silent before Him. He is in charge. We are not in charge. That's what that means. We are silent before a God who is in His holy temple, who is sovereign over the dealings of the world, over the dealings of the election, over the dealings of politics, of of government, of, of the details of our lives, of the things in our lives that we have waited for for years and that he seems to be stepping on the air hose. We are silent before him because we trust him, and he is the one that's in charge. 
You know, there's a big difference between trusting God and trusting God for a particular outcome. There's a big difference between trusting God and trusting God for a particular outcome. Trusting God for a particular outcome is verse 19, where, where the one really in charge tells the idol awake. Here's what needs to happen. But the one in verse 20 who is silent before God just trusts him and leaves the results or, or the, uh, the results to the Lord, whatever those results are. It's a big difference between trusting God and trusting God for a particular outcome. If you are trusting God for a particular outcome, I want to challenge you to let go of that outcome and, and instead to say, Lord, I'm going to be silent before you. I'm going to trust you that you know what's best. And if you want to bring about this outcome that seems right to me or even that your word says is right, I'm going to let that be in your time and not in my time. When Habakkuk got himself refocused, we see a dramatic change in his heart, in his attitude toward God. He goes from accusation at the beginning now to adoration. Look chapter 3, look down at verses 16 and following. I'm just kind of skimming over some of the verses in this great book. But Habakkuk 3, starting at verse 16, this is his response now to the Lord, his final response. I heard, and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people who will arise, uh, for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the trees, on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hind's feet and makes me walk on the high places. Look at the incredible change of heart. Habakkuk, first of all, says in verse 16, they're coming, and I know they're coming, Lord, because you've told me they are, and I am fearful of it, or I'm, I'm quivering and I'm trembling because it's not going to be pretty. But, verse 17, he says, even though that's true, even though the things that I want to happen, I want the fig tree to blossom, I want there to be fruit on the trees. I want there to be olives and food and the flocks and cattle. I want all these good things. But even if they don't happen, Lord, verse 18, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. You see, this is, this is a man that has begun to walk by faith. The proud man or the proud woman is the one who says to the block of wood or to the idol of their own making, this is how it's going to be. This is the result that I must have for you to be a successful Lord in my life. Instead, Habakkuk says, no, even though the fig tree is not doing its thing, the fruit tree is not doing its thing, even though it's empty, 
I'm going to praise God. I'm going to rejoice in the God of my salvation. Or to look back at the end of verse chapter 2, I'm going to be silent before him. I'm going to trust him because the Lord's in his holy temple. The Lord is sovereign. And, and, and he is the one who is in control. So the principle that I've mentioned before, let me just say it again because it works here as well. When distressed by what God isn't doing or is doing, remember the righteous will live by faith. Peace of heart, peace of mind comes by faith, by trusting that God is in control. Not because we're trusting God for a certain result, but that God is in control that he is in his holy temple and he remains in complete control and promises to work all things for good. So, as I mentioned when we got started, you, you came today and I came today with distresses in, in our heart. Probably family, probably something personal, maybe even uh, something personal in your past, whatever it is. I won't try to name it because there's no need. You know exactly what it is, and I do. How can living and walking by faith, what Habakkuk has taught us today, help you to take the next step with the joy that, that he mentions here in verses 18 and 19 rather than uh, the, the tension and the pride that's mentioned throughout the rest of the book? That when we are distressed by what God is or isn't doing, Remember, the righteous will live by faith. I hope that you will take Habakkuk's words to heart today because it's really good news. It really is. And it gives us strength and encouragement that our God is a good God in control and that we have a wonderful hope in him. Let's pray. Father, none of us look forward to the Chaldeans in our lives. We don't look forward to the empty stalls or the fig tree that won't grow figs in spite of our continual work and nurturing. We have the results that we would love to see in our lives. As best we can tell, it would make life so much better if this blank would happen. Habakkuk had that as well. And you've given us a great glimpse, not only in what was happening, happening in 7th century B.C. Um, Judah, but also what's happening in our hearts in 21st century here. That it's a principle that goes across all generations because it is the challenge of our fallen nature. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, we want to be in control. We want you, our God, to jump to our wishes rather than to submit to you. Thank you for the reminder here in Habakkuk that we don't need to be a people who are proud, a people who command our idol to jump, but instead we're silent before you because you are in the heavens and you do as you please and that you are a good and gracious God who promises all throughout the scripture to bring about a good work for those who believe in Christ. And we do believe. Thank you for the great reminder today that we can be a people who not only have faith initially, but the righteous will live by faith throughout all their Christian life. You are a God not only of the past, 
of the great promises and miracles that we see in the scripture, but you are a God of the present, that you are very much involved in our lives, uh, even though it's not a page turner like it is the book of Acts. We believe that you're involved. And Lord God, you are also a God of the future. You give us promises that it's not over, that we have a hope, and it's in our Lord Jesus. Thank you for the promises that we've read today in Scripture. Thank you for Habakkuk's courage to be honest and also for your grace and having him write it down for us. Let us be encouraged and take courage in these words today as we cling to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.